Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 18, the book of Romans, chapter 8, continued. We're going to continue to work our way through Romans chapter 8 today. I'm going to tell you in advance, we're going to be knee-deep in some important theology. Since chapter 8 sums up what Paul has been teaching and and presents the conclusion that's to be drawn from, from all of it, I'm going to do some of the same. And even though we're only at the halfway point of the book of Romans, we studied enough of Romans that we should do this. Now thinking back to what I told you in the introduction to the book of Romans, I remind you that the most common position held by Christian Bible commentators is that the book of Romans is aimed primarily at Gentiles. This is why the book of Romans has grown in stature, to become preeminent in Christian theology and doctrine. Now the assertion is that in his letter Paul is speaking mainly to what we today would call the church. Since the church is generally envisioned as a nearly exclusively Gentile religion. And considerably less so then to the Jews. And I mean believers and non-believers as well. Now I hope our journey through Romans is demonstrating that this traditional viewpoint of Romans being mostly Gentile-oriented, simply cannot be supported. Paul's choice of words reflects unique Jewish idioms and expressions, common um, Jewish cultural norms for his day, typical approaches as used by rabbis to explain and debate scripture, and even comments such as the first verse of chapter 7 which makes it explicit that in several parts of his letter to the Romans he is aiming mostly at Jews. If you recall, the first verse of chapter 7 said, Surely you know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who understand law, that law has authority over a person so long as he lives. Now clearly, those who understand law are Jews. It's not Gentiles. Especially since law in this case is referring to Jewish law, halakha. So most everything Paul said in chapter 7 is aimed at the Jews in Rome. Although the principles he elucidates apply to Gentile believers as well. So in chapter 8, Paul tells his readers what conclusions they ought to draw from what he has previously said that's mainly pertaining to chapter 7 but also to the underlying principles of his letter up to this point as it begins, first verse of chapter 8 therefore there is no longer condemnation awaiting those who are in union with the Messiah Yeshua that's his conclusion so this comment as is all chapter 8, also equally aimed primarily at Jews who know law, halakha. And this can be deduced because chapter 8 is but an 
uninterrupted continuation of chapter 7. Now we can get lulled into a false notion that Paul has begun an entirely new thought pattern in chapter 8 merely because we've changed chapters. But Paul didn't write in chapters. Chapters were artificially added by others some 11 centuries after Paul's day. Paul didn't write using modern English literary and grammar conventions. He wrote using the standard Jewish literary and grammar conventions of his time, which did not include chapter breaks and verse numbers. The point of it is this. While on the surface, especially to Gentile Christians, it seems to be that Paul is instructing only the new believers in Yeshua, Jew and Gentile, just under the surface. We find that he's also addressing Israel and the Jewish people as a whole, as a nation of people, if you would. The nation of people is God's original chosen people, Israel, which is why he has used the promise given to Abraham as a foundational premise for his doctrines. But back in Romans chapter 3, he also alluded to the exclusive advantages given to Jews by God such as being entrusted with God's word and he also says something else that can be that can easily escape our attention Romans chapter 3 verses 1 through 4 say this <clears throat> then what advantage has the Jew what's the value of being circumcised much in every way in the first place the Jews were entrusted with the very words of God. Now if some of them were unfaithful, so what? Does their faithlessness cancel God's faithfulness? Heaven forbid. God would be true even if everyone were a liar, as the Tanakh says, so that you, God, may be proved right in your words and win the verdict when you are put on trial. <clears throat> Paul straw man asks the question in Romans 3.3 3, very important question does the Jews unfaithfulness to God cancel God's faithfulness to the Jews big question Paul immediately answers that question he refutes his straw man and he says heaven forbid but what exactly does Paul have in mind when the discussion turns to God's faithfulness to the Jews? He is speaking of God remaining faithful to the covenants he has made with Israel. Covenants that set them apart from all other nations. What every Jew in the first century would have understood is that the main point of God's covenants with Israel is they are what make Israel Israel. 
Those covenants are what set Israel apart as God's chosen. In fact, in Matthew 15, in the famous story of Yeshua venturing outside of the Holy Land up to Zor and Sidon, he met a Canaanite woman. And this Canaanite woman begged Yeshua to exercise a demon from her daughter. And although Yeshua eventually agreed to do so, his initial response is one that ought to prick the ears of the church and cause us all to take notice. His words, his response to her, won't you please remove this demon from my daughter, was, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Oh my! To whom did our Lord Yeshua out of His own mouth say He was sent? Only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Yeshua, in theory, was Israel's Savior because the Lord's purpose in sending Christ was to solve this deadly problem of sin among His chosen and set-apart people, Israel. In fact, in Matthew chapter 10, Yeshua explicitly instructed the twelve disciples to go only to the house of Israel with the gospel and that they were to avoid Gentiles. Much later, of course, we find the risen Yeshua confront Paul on the road to Damascus and instruct him at that time to go ahead and take the gospel to the Gentile world. So if Yeshua was really only the Messiah for Israel, well, then on what basis could Gentiles be included? There would be two bases for this. First, is that in Romans 4 we learn that Gentiles who trust God through Yeshua become spiritual seed of Abraham and thus co-inheritors of the kingdom of God. And second is that when we'll study uh, when we study and get into Romans chapter 11, Gentile believers have been divinely grafted into the covenants of Israel and thus effectively become part of Israel from a spiritual, not a physical perspective. See, here's where I'm going with this. Especially in chapter 7 and 8, Paul is not only addressing believers, Jew and Gentile, but on a secondary level, he is addressing Israel in general. National Israel. That is, from the near view that we discussed last time and it's necessary to study scripture from the near, mid, and far view to obtain proper context Paul is speaking to believers but if we pull back from the few verses we've read and, and see it in the wider context of the entire Bible the far view then Paul's inclusion of Israel in general starts to come into focus at the same time that he has been explaining why the gospel works and what exactly it does for humanity, for us, 
He's also been defending Israel's election as God's set-apart people, especially for his Jewish audience, but also as a reminder to the Gentiles. So part of Paul's underlying message to his audience is that despite Israel's unfaithfulness to God and unfaithfulness to the covenants meant to bind them to him, God has remained faithful to them. And the chief way that God is showing his faithfulness to them is first, by not abandoning or rejecting Israel, and second, this continuing love and concern for Israel is proven by God sending his only son to give Israel a way out from the death penalty that they have earned for themselves by being disobedient to his covenants, especially as applies to the law of Moses. So there is this dual meaning that's been going on here. One meaning that many Jews would recognize as being about their own Israelite heritage. Another meaning that explains why the Jews would begin would have to begin to share that heritage from a spiritual standpoint. They'd have to share it with believing Gentiles. The part about Israelite heritage, that would have flown right over the heads of the Roman Gentile readers of Paul's letter, just as it does to this day with the church. But many Jews in Rome would have immediately understood these thoughts in the perspective that Paul intended. See, because his choice of terms, his his recounting of Israel's history centered on Abraham and his constant mention of the role of the law, all this would have resonated with the Jews. So now that you are informed, keep this dual purpose of Paul in mind as we continue our study of Romans chapter 8 today. Now since we only addressed the first three verses of this chapter in our last lesson, we're going to reread the entire chapter for the sake of continuity. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, the page is 1410. 1410. Therefore, there is no longer any condemnation awaiting those who are in union with the Messiah Yeshua. Why? Because the Torah of the Spirit, which produces this life in union with the Messiah Yeshua, has set me free from the Torah of sin and death. For what the Torah could not do by itself, because it lacked the power to make the old nature cooperate, God did by sending his own son as a human being with a nature like our own sinful one, but without sin. God did this in order to deal with sin, and in so doing he executed the punishment against sin in human nature, so that the just requirement of the Torah might be fulfilled in us, who do not run our lives according to what our old nature wants, but according to what the Spirit wants. 
For those who identify with their old nature set their minds on the things of the old nature. For those who identify with the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Having one's mind controlled by the old nature is death. Having one's mind controlled by the Spirit is life and shalom. For the mind controlled by the old nature is hostile to God because it does not submit itself to God's Torah. Indeed, it cannot. Thus, those who identify with their old nature cannot please God. But you, you do not identify with your old nature but with the Spirit, provided the Spirit of God is living inside of you. For anyone who doesn't have the Spirit of the Messiah doesn't belong to him. However, if the Messiah is in you, then on the one hand, the body is dead because of sin, but on the other hand, the Spirit is giving life because God considers you righteous. And if the Spirit of the one who raised Yeshua from the dead is living in you, then the one who raised the Messiah Yeshua from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit living in you. So then, brothers... We don't owe a thing to our old nature that would require us to live according to our old nature. For if you live according to your old nature, you will certainly die. But if by the Spirit you keep putting to death the practices of the body, you will live. Now all who are led by God's Spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to bring you back again to fear. On the contrary, you received the Spirit who makes us sons and by whose power we cry out, Abba. The Spirit himself bears witness with our own spirits that we are children of God. And if we are children, then we're also heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with the Messiah, provided we are suffering with him in order also to be glorified with him. I don't think the sufferings we're going through now are even worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us in the future. The creation waits eagerly for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was made subject to frustration, not willingly, but because of the one who subjected it. But it was given a reliable hope that it too would be set free from its bondage to decay and would enjoy the freedom accompanying the glory that God's children will have. We know that until now the whole creation has been groaning as with the pains of childbirth and not only it, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we continue waiting eagerly to be made sons. That is, to have our whole bodies redeemed and set free. It was in this hope that we were saved. But if we see what we hope for, it isn't hope. After all, who hopes for what he already sees? But if we continue hoping for something we don't see, then we still wait eagerly for it with perseverance. Similarly, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we don't know how to pray the way we should, but the Spirit himself pleads on our behalf with groanings too deep for words. And the one who searches hearts knows exactly what the Spirit is thinking because his pleadings for God's people According to accord with God's will. Furthermore, we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called in accordance with his purpose. Because those whom he knew in advance, he also determined in advance, would be conformed to the pattern of his Son, 
so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he thus determined in advance, he also called. And those whom he called, he also caused to be righteous. And those whom he caused to be considered righteous, he also glorified. Well, what then are we to say to these things? If God's for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare even his own son, but gave him up on behalf of us all. Is it possible that having given us his son, he would not give us everything else too? So who will bring a charge against God's chosen people? Certainly not God. He's the one who causes them to be considered righteous, who punishes them. Certainly not the Messiah Yeshua who died and more than that has been raised is at the right hand of God and is actually pleading on our behalf. Well, who will separate us then from the love of the Messiah? Trouble? Hardship? Persecution? Hunger? Poverty? Danger? War? As the Tanakh puts it, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are super conquerors through the one who has loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor other heavenly rulers, neither what exists nor what's coming, neither powers above nor powers below nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which comes to us through the Messiah Yeshua, our Lord. If you listen carefully, you notice that the word spirit is front and center in this chapter, being used 21 times. This is an important indicator, because in the previous chapters of Romans, it was the term law that Paul used so very often. So Paul is now moving on from his explanation of the effects of the law and what God has done to counteract the curse that comes from disobeying it which Paul sums up in verse 1 to explaining that it is the indwelling of the Spirit of God that marks and it characterizes a Jew or a Gentile as having been righteous justified by his or her trust in Yeshua's perfect faithfulness Thus, in Paul's summation of verse 1 about the case he's been building for the past seven chapters, he says, those who are in union with Messiah Yeshua are no longer under the condemnation, the death sentence that is the consequence of breaking the laws of Moses. And in verse 2 he explains why this works like it does. He says... And it is that the law of the Spirit has set the believer free from the law of sin and death. Now we talked about this last time, I'm going to expand on it a bit. The term law as used here is an expression, might even be a metaphor. It's not meant in the legal sense. It's not used to identify some particular holiness code or a regulation. In modern English, this use of the word law more means something like principle. It's something that regulates. So the principle of the Spirit has set the believer free 
from the principle of sin and death. And most importantly, it must be understood that the meaning of the law of sin and death, that phrase, the law of sin and death, does not mean the law of Moses whose substance is sin and death. So this statement is not setting the law of Moses over and against the Spirit of God. Rather, it is setting life over and against death. The law of the Spirit, which produces life, has set me free from the law of sin and death. Now this interpretation is backed up when we read in verse 3 that what the Torah could not do was to change the human nature because it was never designed to do that. It is our human nature controlled by our evil inclination that's the problem. The law, because it is essentially words on scrolls, doesn't have any inherent power to reach in and affect the inner self and thus resist the evil inclination that's the master of human beings. Now remember, this mastery of the evil inclination is the result of all of us, everybody, being related to Adam. So God sent his son to deal with the problem of sin and death that resulted from disobedience to the law because God's son did have the inherent power to reach inside that inner self and change our nature. The irony is that in addition to having divine power, Yeshua also had the same flawed nature that ordinary human beings have. This was necessary because God's plan was to execute, to put to death, to sentence to death that sinful human nature, to destroy it. How did God do this? He did it by allowing His Son, Yeshua, and the sinful nature that He carried to be literally executed with Christ behaving as a substitute, a representative of our sinful nature. It worked just like the Levitical sacrificial system operated and prefigured. Hebrew humans sinned. They broke the law. But instead of them receiving the eternal death penalty, the curse of the law, innocent animals could be substituted. The principle was that God allowed the sin that the human committed to be imputed upon this otherwise innocent animal. And then the animal was executed as a substitute or as a representative for the guilty human being. Likewise, our sins were imputed upon the otherwise innocent Christ and then he was executed as a substitute for us. But we must be honest. While Paul says believers have been set free 
from the law of sin and death and instead we're now under the law of the Spirit, the reality is Christians still sin. Our lives become an illicit mixture of sinning and God-imputed righteousness. This unwelcome phenomenon was well recognized by Paul within himself such that he cries out in angry frustration near the end of Romans chapter 7, Oh, what a miserable creature I am! So we are not entirely set free from the power of sin. And by the way, don't let any pious-sounding minister tell you that you are. However, we are entirely free from the power of the consequence of sin, which is death. That's what we're free from. Thus, we have to think of this freedom we have gained from the power of sin and death as not so much an event as it is an ongoing process. See, just as we have not escaped the reality that no matter that we are believers, our fleshly bodies are still going to die and they're going to decay in the earth just as anyone else. On the other hand, the other aspect of death, spiritual death, we have already escaped thanks to Yeshua. That is not in process. It's finished. Thus, while we have a new master in the spirit that empowers our good inclination, that does not mean that the residue of our old master, our evil inclination to sin, has fled. We still have to contend with it. But, through the Spirit, we have a power in us that is able to fight it effectively. 1 John 4.4 4. You children are from God and have overcome the false prophets because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So, what are we to do in this present state whereby we are far better off than before we knew Yeshua? Yet still, we hang in, in suspension seemingly neither fish nor fowl we're saved and our spirits already have eternal life yet our flesh still succumbs to sin as though we weren't saved back in Romans chapter 6 we read of Paul's approach to the problem that in some ways is really a pleasant fiction but in other ways is quite practical considering this fallen state of the world and the condition in which we live today. Romans 6.11 he said, listen carefully, in the same way consider yourselves to be dead to sin but alive for God by your union with the Messiah Yeshua. Notice the use of the word consider. In Greek it is logizomai, logizomai which means to infer, 
to count oneself as something. So to paraphrase, Paul says that even though it's not actually so, believers, count yourselves as though you are dead to sin. In other words, our mindset of believers, the way we should understand this strange conundrum we find ourselves in, is to think of ourselves, to do our best to behave as though we are completely dead to the power of sin, while at the same time we are more alive than ever to God's will. We play a sort of game with ourselves while we are waiting for the reality of it all to become true. Don't discount this. Because there's an old saying about how to change behavior. Behavior, Fake it until you feel it. That is, you know what you ought to do. You already know that. You know what the right thing is. Even though you sure don't feel like doing it, you feel like doing the wrong thing. So do the right thing. Even if it's not entirely sincere, until doing the right thing is what your inner self wants to do. Look, this frustrating position we find ourselves in is exactly what Paul was lamenting in verses 15 through 24 of Romans 7. This is why perseverance must be part of every believer's life. And we must pray for this perseverance every single day. But now let me assure you, I'm not suggesting a self-help program of positive thinking. What believers are doing by counting ourselves as dead to sin is less a matter of faking it, more a matter of steadily dying to self. God's law has revealed our sin. We've been caught. Now the Spirit gives us the power to fight against our former propensity to sin. And now believers are in the process of learning how to disobey our old nature and instead to obey this new nature that God has given to us. We're learning how to discern when something is our will versus when something is God's will. And how to choose to do God's will. See, this is a hard and it's a lifelong process, but it's immensely worthwhile. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15, 16 through 19. For if the dead are not raised, then the Messiah has not been raised either. And if the Messiah has not been raised, your trust is useless, and you are still in your sins. Also, if this is the case, then those who died in union with the Messiah are lost. It is only for this life that we have put our hope in the Messiah. If it is only for this life, rather, that we have put our hope in the Messiah, we are more pitiable than anyone. 
Indeed, if our eternal future is no better than this present life that we live as believers, which is actually a constant struggle to do what we know is right, then we are to be pitied by others and not emulated. I'm not talking about a struggle for wealth and abundance in terms of the earthly economy. Some of us may have plenty of that, others may not. I'm talking about internal struggles. No believer will escape that. The struggles of conscience when looking at ourselves in the mirror after doing what we know is wrong, we know better, feeling defeated, feeling ashamed, and asking ourselves how God could possibly continue to love us. But the good news is that there is a divine power that Yeshua's sacrificial actions have given to us that is so much greater than that old sinful nature. The Holy Spirit has given, been given to us to guide us, to instruct us, to comfort us, to forgive us, to give us hope and perseverance, to show us the greatest mercy, so that despite it all, we can live a life of joy and hope. There is This is really the only real source of hope that mankind has. There is nothing else. But it is also a source of hope we can trust, we can depend upon it, because our Creator has personally guaranteed it. Well, verses 6 and 7 are a continuing midrash, that is, a continuing exposition of the doctrine of two masters, or doctrine of two spirits, that Paul has used constantly throughout his letter. So he says that the mind controlled by the old nature, that is the mind that is a slave to the master of the evil inclination, that's death. But the mind controlled by God's spirit, the mind that's a slave to the master of the good inclination, that's life. And this is because our old nature is naturally hostile to God. Our old nature is virtually incapable of cooperating with God. Thus those who continue to willfully identify with their old nature, that is those who have not accepted Messiah Yeshua and thus become identified with Him, can't please God. Now again, it is impossible to please two masters. We can't please our old nature and at the same time please God. We can't split time with each. We can't compromise between them. Paul continues to expand his emphasis on the Spirit in verse 9. He essentially equates the terms, the term Holy Spirit, with the term Spirit of Messiah and with the term Spirit of God. In one sense, Paul is making all three of these terms synonymous. But in another sense, he is speaking of the mysterious nature of God, which is unity, the Echad of God. Father, Spirit of God, Son, Spirit of Messiah, and Holy Spirit. Whereas Paul has been speaking in a duality to Israel in general and to believers in specific, at least since Romans chapter 7, 
In verse 9, he is addressing only believers. Because only believers actually have the Spirit of God living in us. And he is also laying down a doctrine. Kind of important. If we don't have the Spirit in us, then we don't identify with Messiah no matter what we say. And if we don't identify with the Messiah, then the only alternative to that is we identify with our old sinful nature. No middle ground. I don't wish to create a theological debate, but I probably will. But some believers think that the New Testament envisions a process whereby first we are baptized into an identity with Christ and then sometimes later we are baptized into the Holy Spirit. Essentially this means that we first identify with Messiah, that is we come to believe in Yeshua, and that at some later point, if we believe correctly, then the Holy Spirit will indwell us. Now if I'm interpreting correctly what Paul seems to clearly say here, in Romans 8-9, such a thing cannot be accurate. Paul says that if you have the Holy Spirit, you are identified with Christ. And if you have identified with Christ, then you have the Holy Spirit. So to me, this destroys any thought that a new believer can for a time be saved, be identified with Christ, but have not yet received the Holy Spirit. They're completely coupled. This is because Paul sets up the dynamic that the one validates the other. Or to put it negatively, you can't have one without the other. It operates like sin and death. Sin and death come as a fused pair. You can't have one without the other. So it is that identity with Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that comes as a fused pair. You can't have one without the other. Now let's move on to verse 11 because I think Paul says something quite plainly that for some reason, some believers, at least some denominations, have a very hard time with it. There is a belief among some versions of the Trinity doctrine that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are co-equal. That is, one has no authority or preeminence over the other. There's no hierarchy. However, I find that mindset is the result of the desire of the New Testament church to shove the God the Father to the background in order to shove God the Son to the fore. Or to allow God the Father to remain the God of the Jews, but to make God the Son to become the God of Christians. So the solution is simply to make Father, Son, and Holy Spirit co-equal, if not virtually identical. Yet in verse 11, according to Paul, there was a specific one of these three identified and named spirits that raised Yeshua from the dead. That is, the spirit of Yeshua did not raise Yeshua. It was a different spirit. And it is this same spirit, the same one, who resurrected the Messiah that lives in us as believers. 
But the last half of verse 11 causes the controversy. What does Paul mean? That the same Spirit that raised Yeshua from the dead will give life to our mortal bodies. Calvin says this is speaking of life in the sense of an ethical renewal of our bodies. David Stern says it is life in the sense of the Holy Spirit giving believers hope. I find both of these to be a reach. Rather, in its plainest textual sense, since the topic is who or what raised Yeshua from the dead, then it is comparing our mortal bodies to Christ's mortal body that died. And just as it is the work of a certain spirit that raised Christ from the dead, so it will be a work of that same spirit that will raise us from the dead. Resurrection. So Paul is speaking of a future time at the end of days. And by the way, the believers of Paul days thought that the end of days was imminent. Not hundreds or thousands of years into the future, but any day now. So verse 12 then presents us with another point of summation for Paul. All that he has said in the first 11 verses of chapter 8 leads him to conclude what he now states in verses 11 and 12. And he introduces this summation by saying, So then, brothers... And what he does is actually to speak of our relationship to our old nature in terms of debt. That is, we don't owe any kind of debt to our old nature that would force us to keep giving it our allegiance and our labors. On the contrary, by switching our allegiance to the Spirit, then we are essentially killing our old nature who thinks we still owe it something. We should take this as but a rough illustration. In the same way as Paul used the illustration of the widow remarrying in Romans chapter 7. Verse 14 says that a believer is God's son. Because anyone led by God's spirit is a son to him. This is a Jewish expression. And it reflects a universally understood Jewish cultural concept of the value of a son above the value of a servant. Now although several Bible characters will be called servants of God, which is a very high status, by the way, those called sons of God are even higher. Thus while priests were called servants of God, a high status, Israel's kings are called sons of God, a higher status. Prophets were called servants of God. Yeshua is the son of God. You see the the difference here? Thus the typical Levitical priests, although indeed properly serving God, do not have God's Spirit in them. So, they can only be called servants. But any believer 
is elevated above Levitical priests because we have God's Spirit in us, so we are sons of God. Do you see this? And ladies, don't let this bother you. This is not a gender issue. Son versus daughter. This issue is a status issue. From a status status issue, you gain the status as sons of God just as does a male if you trust Yeshua. Next, Paul explains that it is not a spirit of slavery that we get from God when he, he, he puts his spirit into us, but rather it's essentially a spirit of adoption that we gain. I told you there'd be a lot of theology today. So it's your fault if you didn't drink enough coffee. The notion here is that the character of God's indwelling spirit, the spirit that's in us, is not one of coercion that works by putting a believer into a state of fear as it would be for a slave. See, that is, the reason that a slave is loyal to his master and does his master's bidding is because the master could severely harm him or kill him if he didn't. The slave has few rights and no choice. So it is in the fear of his master. That's what compels his loyalty. Instead, says Paul, the character of God's indwelling spirit operates within us more the way an adopted son does towards his father. He operates out of love and gratitude, not out of fear. The son obeys his father not from a fear of bad repercussions if he doesn't, but rather he obeys from a motive of sincere desire to reciprocate the love of his father by pleasing him. This is the reason that Paul then employs the term Abba. Abba means father, but it's a, a term of endearment, a term of, in, of, of, of affection. And in verses 16 and 17, the other status benefit of being a son, son instead of a servant to God is brought to bear. A son, and boy this is important, a son inherits from his father. A servant does not. So since God's Spirit bears witness that believers, all those who have His Spirit in Him, are His sons, then there can be no doubt. In the biblical sense, a witness is someone who attests or confirms the truth of a statement. Biblically and in tradition, it usually takes two witnesses to confirm something. So here we have our own spirits and God's spirit as the two witnesses. Therefore the proof of our being God's children means we have the right to be heirs. Heirs to what? To the kingdom of God. It's ours. Yeshua was the first heir. And those who trust him are now fellow heirs with him. I love the way that C.E.B. Cranfield 
speaks of the next several verses beginning with verse 17. He says this, The subject with which this subsection is concerned is Christian hope. The life which is characterized by the Spirit of God, which is a life in which God's law is established, is a life characterized by hope. A believer must have God's law, which is of the same substance and principles as the law of Moses established within him. This happens by an act of God, the indwelling of the Spirit. It is a fulfillment of the prophecy of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31 30 through 33. Here, the days are coming, says Adonai, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day I took them by their hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt because they, for their part, violated my covenant, even though I, for my part, was a husband to them, says Adonai. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says Adonai. I'll put my Torah within them. I'll write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer will any of them teach his fellow community member or his brother no Adonai. For all will know me, from the least of them to the greatest, because I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Since Yeshua has put an end to the death sentence of the law for his worshipers, all then that remains is the laws themselves for worshipers. But my brothers and sisters, if we should think to ourselves, well, if there's no eternal death sentence for disobedience, then why would I as a believer obey? I mean, I'm not subject to the death penalty anymore. Why not just disobey? What difference does it make? That, my friends, is the attitude of a servant. That is the question a slave of the evil inclination asks. First, Paul rightly says a slave must be mastered by fear. However, since the Spirit of God indwells the believer and the Spirit of God was, has written God's law on the hearts, the minds of his worshipers, and since his worshipers have by grace been elevated to the lofty status of sons of God, we have the right to call God Abba. Therefore, the believer's following of God's law comes not from the fear of consequences. Consequences if we don't. In other words, the death sentence, which Yeshua was already born for believers. But from our love of our Father. Our desire to please Him. We're going to stop for today and finish up Romans chapter 8 next time.